HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. If your restaurant wants to put the best on the table, look for food with the New York State Certified Seal. It's food that is grown right, right here. Learn more at certified.ny.gov. This is Chef Emily Peterson, host of Sharp and Hot. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network, broadcasting live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. If you like this program, visit heritageradionetwork.org for thousands more. your ears. I'm Harry Rosenblum from the Brooklyn Kitchen, a cooking store located at 100 Frost Street in Williamsburg, Brooklyn. Join me every Wednesday as I talk with people about what they do and how it influences their personal food stories. This is a show about people, life, and food. Please take a moment to like the show on iTunes, provided you do in fact like it. And please reach out if you have any questions. You can reach me via email, harry at thebrooklynkitchen.com. And you can follow me on social media at thefoodballer. Today is episode number 51 of Feast Your Ears, and joining me through the magic of internet and telephony is Peter Hertzman, who is a culinary instructor, historian, author, uh, among his many articles. Uh, Peter's covered subjects as far-reaching as heat and umami in the works of Escoffier. Uh, We'll talk a little bit about that later, I hope. His book, Knife Skills Illustrated, uh, was released in 2007. It's an excellent look at the subject. It's often hard to translate to the page things like Knife Skills, and that book does an excellent job of it. Um, And it was through a shared love of knives, specifically Japanese blades, that Peter and I first met uh, in 2013. Uh, We were on a trip together to Japan to visit with knife makers in Sakai and Nara, Japan, and we'll talk about that as well. So thank you, Peter, for joining me. Are you there on the line? Yes, I am. Great. Uh, great Great to hear your voice. Great to talk to you. Yeah, it's been a while. It has. Um, so, Peter, can you introduce yourself and uh, tell the listeners uh, sort of how you introduce yourself when you meet someone and they say, you know, Peter, what do you do with your time? Uh, well, it depends on how much time they have to listen to me. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, I basically describe myself as a ne'er-do-well masking as an independent researcher. <laughs> sounds sounds uh, sounds about right from uh, from what I what I know about you. Um, and uh, and you live currently in uh, in San Francisco, right? I'm actually in Palo Alto, oh, in, Palo Alto. Is, uh, in, the, in the Bay Area, and uh, I have lived my entire life, which is now uh, getting close to 69 years old, within a one by five mile uh, ellipse. So, other than traveling a lot and being out of town for school, I've essentially lived in the same place my entire life. Currently, uh, 32 years where I am now. 
Wow, that's you know that's something that I picked up on on the on the questionnaire that I sent you that I find to be I find that to be really interesting. Is that something that comes up in conversation for you with other people often? Well, it, it does at times, uh, especially. I mean, it started in, in the '90s when the company I was working with, uh, the way the company cafeteria was set up. I often found myself, even though in those days I was only in my 40s. Uh, there's so many changes here in you know the Silicon Valley area that right. be sitting in the cafeteria talking to people in their 20s, describing things that they had no concept of. Right. Uh, you know, as far as uh, roadways and, and uh, restaurants or things like that. Sure. And now that I'm old enough to be these folks, you know, grandparent, <laughs> uh, it comes up even more often with a lot of the people I meet. Yeah, I mean, it, it, it led me to sort of think about what that would have been like for me, right? If I, knowing where I grew up and where I, I originally grew up in Westchester County, New York, and what that would be like if I still lived in that small, uh, uh, you know, that close to where I had grown up. And, I, you know, I have to imagine that's incredibly rare in this day and age for people to have lived their entire life, aside from travel, in such a small area. And, and where it also comes up now is where, you know, especially in Safran, around San Francisco, where people produce uh, books about food in San Francisco, and what they're writing is often quite uh, different from my memory. Ah, sure. You know, they're writing about the past, and what they're working from is newspaper articles and PR things, uh, and not really being able to get into uh, what history is all about. Uh, and it, it's it's something I you know certainly have an interest in. Uh, my grandfather on my father's side was born in 1868. Hmm. Uh, so only two generations ago, right. you know, we're still talking about uh, uh, 140 years almost. And so he came to San Francisco prior to the turn of the 20th century. Hmm. And my brother and I have always, you know, thought in, you know, in our later years how great it would be just to sit down and talk to him about what life looks like in the city uh, you know, 116 years ago. Right. I mean, uh, you know, the the ability to do that kind of first-person research, I mean, it, it sounds like even now where people do, you know, people who are writing the articles you mentioned could come to people like yourself who do remember what happened, say, 30 years ago, but they're not, right? They're looking at articles or they're looking at sort of remnants of the time that aren't first-person interviews. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that that, you know, I, I wonder if that's something that's gotten a little bit lost um, potentially in sort of the modern the modern age because we're so quick to look things up via some kind of, you know, via the Internet essentially um, rather than to call someone. I mean, I, you know, I definitely, uh, you know, I'm younger, I'm almost 40, but I, I, I recognize some of the feelings you're talking about when I talk to younger people about parts of Brooklyn where I've now lived for almost 20 years and, you know, things that were here back in the 90s that don't exist anymore. Well, an example is boneless, skinless chicken breast, you know, common to uh, a lot of things nowadays. And your age, the likelihood that you remember that it didn't exist before the middle 90s, uh, probably not the case, right? Yeah. Uh, and so it's we have, you know, our current food scene is viewed by a lot of people as uh, somewhat static and having been this way for a long time. 
But when we look at, uh, especially the products available like a grocery store and something like that, and now we're a typical grocery store will have over 50,000 items. Uh, you know, there's no memory in a large part of the community when stores uh, would fit into the average size house. Right. Right. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, you know, I mean, my store, as you're well aware, is tiny compared to, yeah. <laughs> compared to most most groceries that uh, that people sort of know, you know know about. Um, you know, I mean, for me, that sort of brings up what I mentioned in the introduction. I, you know, I was reading a, a piece that you were writing about umami um, and sort of researching this idea of umami that is something that I feel, you know, is, is very modern um, in, at least in Western food, we talk about umami and mushrooms have umami and anchovies have umami and sort of how do you add that thing, those things in dashi. But, you know, you were looking backwards and found references to things like mushroom essence in, in French culinary texts from centuries ago. And it's the same thing. We just didn't call it that, right? Right. Well, and it was, in fact, something that, uh, you know, was used in the same way. So a number of the restaurants that I worked in in France, uh, it was not uncommon, you know, as I said in the article, to have this cardboard tube of maji, is what they'd call it, which was, you know, the instant chicken powder. And that was high up on a shelf, and they would make some preparation, and it seemed a little bit flat. And they'd reach in, you know, for a pinch or a handful or whatever, and throw it into the dish. And now, all magically, it was no longer flat. Uh, You know, the number one ingredient in that, I don't believe is MSG, but it's in there. And MSG, of course, is, you know, uh, glutamic acid, which we recognize as one of the you know umami flavors, and you know it was part of that. And, and before that, uh, those things were available. People used essences. The earliest I think I found was ham essence, hmm. and uh, you know, I'm not sure the hams in, in the way they referred to in, in you know seven or sixteen ninety in Marseille. Uh, you know, not our boiled hams of today. They were dried products, which had a, uh, you know, probably similar more to the Iberico type hams, right. which also, you know, very high in umami. Sure, I mean, and and I mean to to sort of bring that to bring that full circle. I mean, one of the dishes I think that David Chang became you know recognized for that people really, you know, when we at Mamafuku Co was this country ham dashi that he did. That, you know, when you call it country ham dashi, it's very hip and very, you know, 2015. When you call it ham essence, you know, the same thing was being made hundreds of years ago. Yeah, and I think what he actually there, he's because he has a dislike for, I remember reading uh, for pork tenderloins. And so he was essentially treating the pork tenderloin the same as... uh, you know, katsuoboshi, ah, right, sure. and drying it and curing it and then shaving it and making uh, his broth out of that. Uh, and it's, it was quite good. I've had it a couple of times and I liked it a lot. Yeah, no, I mean, I, I have too. It's the, it's the, you know, everything is, everything old is new again kind of, kind of thing, right? Um, mm-hmm. So uh, I wanted to talk a little bit, you were just in Japan again, um, you know, right. since, since our last trip. Um, and I noticed looking through some of the photos that you sent me that uh, you took a bunch of photos of stoves. And I wanted to, <laughs> I wanted to talk about what, you know, what was it about the, what was it about the stoves in Japan? I mean, could, you know, obviously, I, you know, and, and to sort of preface this for, for listeners, when Peter and I were in Japan together, obviously we spent a lot of time talking about cooking and, and things culinary. Um, you know, one of the things that's always struck me about Japan as being different from the West, having grown up in the U.S., is a lack of ovens. And 
so sort of how the how the Japanese sort of you know battery to cuisine, if you will, or you know sort of cooking apparatus differs from American. Yeah, well, I'm, I'm not sure when there is the you know various big changes in Japanese cuisine. Uh, things like sukiyaki and tempura are credited to the Portuguese in the 17th century. Uh, how widespread that became, I don't really know. Modern dishes like okonomiyaki and uh, ramen are more post-war. But going through all of uh, Japanese cuisine for a long time is the concept that the basic meal consisted of rice pickles and uh, soup. Mm-hmm. And when you look at uh, the typical Japanese house, uh, even from someone very poor, there'd be some sort of fire in the center on which there's a pot. And food could either be boiled or simmered in some form, or it could be grilled. And by grilling, they'd take fish and put it on sticks and, and grill it that way. Uh, so as far as the application of heat, that was pretty much what things were limited to. I've only been in a couple of uh, modern Japanese houses, and ovens, you know, in the Western style of being this large thing plunked in the wall, it's still pretty rare from what I can see. Yeah. It's more equivalent to the, you know, the, the countertop convection oven or even slightly larger, uh, which is what's used. You know, my, my interest, I'm not sure where exactly it started. Uh, I gave a talk at the last Roger Smith conference in New York City, which is, I don't know, maybe five years ago now, on the concept that stoves and refrigerators were essentially you know, similar items physically, uh, one pulling heat in and one you know, pulling heat out of food, uh, two sides of the same coin. And what I started with that is wind up getting expanded. I did a talk on uh, refrigeration in Dublin at their, their gastronomy meeting in June. Uh, I've given a number of talks at museums on uh, stoves and refrigerators. And two years ago, when I traveled up the eastern seacoast from St. Augustine to New York, I spent as much time as I could looking at you know fireplaces and stoves like that, collecting information. And uh, it's something that you know in, in a modern kitchen we take for granted. Uh, there has been a few major changes in cooktops in the last uh, 20 years. But for the most part, it's it's a somewhat of a static technology. Sure. You, you have a you know a, a chamber stove that's now what 60 years old, 70 years old, and other than it having some interesting features, it's still pretty much the same as what you can get now, and it's it's advances over early stoves uh, were somewhat minor. The point of all this is that that our tools for cooking both reflect, you know, what we're cooking and at the same time maybe will drive what we're cooking. Hmm. And what I mean by that is if you take something like this new so-called sous vide technology, uh, which I prefer to think of as limited temperature cooking, in other words, the idea of cooking something up to a certain temperature and holding it so it doesn't overcook, you know, there's some modern technology that brings it to the household, but the process is actually fairly old. Right. Uh, 
in uh, 19, uh, or two, 1999 when I learned I was at a restaurant called the Burj de la Truth, and we were uh, doing you know, truffles and foie gras was what we specialized in. But uh, the foie gras didn't come pre-plucked from the duck. We got the whole ducks and took them apart and had to do something with the rest of the duck. Well, the legs, you know, the hindquarters were confit. Mm-hmm. And the way I learned how to do that was that the fat couldn't be any fat or any hotter than I could put my hands in to turn the legs. Got it. So, which for me is about 140 degrees Fahrenheit, and which is also the temperature if I was to do some sous vide like that yep. that I would use. Yep. Uh, so it's it's a similar type of, of process. We've just it's been modernized by putting things in plastic bags. Uh, you have the you know circulators or heating baths, uh, static heating baths, you know, to control it. But the basic concept has existed for a long time. The earliest uh, I've been finding reference to, you know, limited temperature cooking is actually in uh, Charles Dickens, one of his journals uh, from the 1840s, where he discusses the concept of it. Hmm. I mean, it definitely, it's something that for me now with a, with a modern sort of, you know, home sous vide technology, one of the things that I make the most, because it's something that my kids will eat and is easy is I just do eggs in the shell which, you know, makes me think, of course, of the onsen tamago, which is now sort of ubiquitous in the ramen world. But that's something the Japanese have been making for a long time by putting the eggs in the hot spring, which was, mm-hmm. a, which was that exactly that. It was a, you know, it, it was a, it was just a sous vide bath coming out of the water, coming out of the ground. Exactly. And, and most of those were stayed, you know, nice constant temperature. And so it was a matter of timing and you sort of hit where you want to be, uh, you know, one of the cooks I know does a lot of that sort of stuff, just, you know, boils eggs for six minutes, takes yeah. them out, throws them in a nice bath, and generally they're fine. Uh, Chef Steps has a, a calculator for sous vide where you put all the mentions and what sort of condition you want, and it tells you how long to do it for. Eggs are one of the things where you're, it's really cooking, although using the same equipment, is really more akin to throwing a roast in the oven, though. Mm. And the reason I say that is there's so many different proteins uh, in eggs, and they all tend to coagulate at different temperatures. And you have a situation where a protein may uh, coagulate at temperature X if it sees it for 15 seconds, but at a much lower temperature if it sees it for 10 minutes. Right. And so you get into a situation where uh, really to be consistent with eggs, it's both a combination of temperature and time. Yeah. So it's not temperature limited in that same sense sure. as throwing a, a steak in a, a sous vide or something like that. Sure. Um, We're going to take a a short break here and hear from one of our sponsors. And uh, when we come back, I want to talk a little bit about what you refer to as the dishwashing fraternity. Okay. (laughs) Music for this commercial break is brought to you by Taxstar. And this track is called Walking Like a Cowboy. New York chefs and restaurants are proud of the food they put on the table. 
and serving produce that comes from local, environmentally responsible farms is a way to leave an even better taste in everyone's mouth. So when shopping for your ingredients, look for the New York State Grown and Certified Seal. It lets you know which food is grown right, right here in New York State, certifying the food that comes from local farms that meet a higher standard. You'll not only be serving local food, you'll be supporting local farmers. Learn more about the New York State Grown and Certified program at certified.ny.gov. Welcome back to Feast Your Ears. I'm Harry Rosenblum from the Brooklyn Kitchen, and I have Peter Hertzman on the line today. And we were talking before the break um, about life in San Francisco and uh, limited temperature cooking. And uh, I definitely want to encourage everyone listening, you should check out Peter's website. It's uh, Hertzman, H-E-R-T-Z-M-A-N-N.com. And there you will find an, an incredible amount of information um, written by Peter um, that started out as a website called A La Carte um, and has now morphed into uh, some other things. But it has everything from that website, which now uh, dates back about 17 years. Is that right, Peter? Yeah, 1999. Um, so on there, there, there I, was, I was reading some of the things that you wrote, I think, when you were in Scotland, right, back in June? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and you... Uh, you referred and, and you, you wrote out uh, some information about one of your first jobs in a kitchen, um, actually in upstate New York, I believe, um, and you refer to what you call the dishwashing fraternity. Can you explain that? Okay. Uh, well, for a little background, uh, I, I think people understand, uh, if not um, consciously or subconsciously, that most people's impression of what happens in a restaurant kitchen uh, doesn't match the reality of it. <laughs> uh, and, you know, there's been a, a bunch of movies recently which uh, depict restaurant kitchens. And, you know, even though they have technical advisors, uh, you know, they always take, allow, you know, make allowances to make things more interesting to the public. Uh, my personal experience and mo- most of my restaurant experience has been outside the U.S., mostly in France and Switzerland. And, you know, I've never been in a restaurant where chefs, you know, scream, hmm. things like that. Sure, uh, that doesn't, unfortunately, that doesn't make for good TV, right? Right. <laughs> yeah, you know, the, it's less, you know, the, the drama in, in a lot of ways is more internal, you know, when you have sure. to plate 220 dishes in 10 minutes or something like that. And yep. you're, you know, you're rushing around. Uh, if you're starting, you know, if you're having conversations, you're not doing your work. So right, right. It gets in the way of that. So, yeah, my first uh, job in the, the culinary world was as a dishwasher at a uh, roadhouse in Rochester, New York, called Runs, R-U-N-D-S, uh, which had some interesting and controversial management. I actually looked him up on the Internet recently. I found that uh, the reality of it was different than it felt like down in the kitchen. Uh, and I was working there as, as a dishwasher. What I came to understand uh, and has since you know seen in other places, and uh, when we were in Scotland, the subject came up a number of times since there was only four people in the kitchen and all of us washed the dishes, and three of the four had had worked previously as dishwashers. Hmm. The reality that, you know, in a lot of ways, the number two person in the kitchen is the dishwasher. Right, absolutely. 
Uh, most people, including uh, some of the cooks that come out of culinary school, think a dishwasher is you know somewhere along the person who sweeps the floors and you know paints the walls and those sort of things. But uh, in most restaurants, there's insufficient dishes to uh, make it through an entire service without having to reuse some. Yeah. There's insufficient, uh, you know, frying pans and things like that. And so the dishwasher or dishwashers uh, have to, you know, keep things flowing so that, you know, food gets out to the customer. It's off a dishwasher and you can uh, stop things up real fast. And dishwashers who are been on the job for a while and understand which cooks use what, you know, equipment. Yep and block one cook from doing their work while the rest of them flow really nicely. Sure. Or, or understand uh, it, how the plates need to come out and if that they, you know, whether they need to be wiped or whether a plate that isn't specifically round has to get placed a certain way on the shelf so it comes off the right way for the chef. Yeah. It, it's just a, a whole load of stuff. It's, uh, you know, knowing when to, to break down and maybe change the water in a dishwasher. Some of them don't make it through a full service without needing to be changed because, uh, you know, glasses start coming out cloudy and things like that. Uh, there's just a, a myriad of things that if you piss off a dishwasher, you can ruin your, you know, your evening. Yep, absolutely. Um so yeah, I mean, my my first job also, um, not that I did not go on to become a chef, but my first job in, in that I ever had anywhere that paid me money was as a dishwasher. Um, so I definitely, I, th- I think it's true, and I think that there's a, you know, when I was in when I was in college, I studied um, I studied design for theater, but I remember very clearly a lecture from a Broadway designer um, whose name escapes me now. I don't remember who it was, but who said one of the most important things is as you become at the head of the team, it's always really, he always said, eat with the crew. And I sort of, you know, I think that that's a sort of similar thing, that the idea being that you need to respect the people at the, you know, who are underneath you at the very bottom because it's all part of a team. It's all it's all a big circle. It's not just that you're at the top and you're sort of manning, lording over everybody. Mm-hmm. Um, I want to talk about knives, a subject that is uh, something that is obviously important to you um, with your book. And, you know, I wanted to sort of see what you think about um, sort of where things are in knives now. I mean, knives are something that you've obviously been using and thinking about and writing about for for a long time. And and that has changed quite a bit, Um, you know, from the availability of Eastern-style Japanese knives here in the United States um, to what I feel like now there's a, a movement of handmade knives in America that wasn't even present 10 years ago. And I'd mm-hmm. like to sort of, you know, what do you what do you think about those knives? Have you handled those? Do you have makers that you that you like? Um, or do you think that, you know, sort of the historical Japanese-German knives are still, you know, kind of the pinnacle of, of human knife making? Well, I would say that uh, I guess a couple caveats, I guess, to start off with. One, uh, knife making or knives uh, is surrounded by a lot of uh, BS and lore, just like a lot of other aspects of cooking, that uh, a lot of the so-called experts, uh, i.e. chefs, uh, really know very little about knives in general. And a lot of the um, people, you know, whether they're knife makers or, you know, the um, others in the knife industry have a very short memory. You know, they have, in a sense, what we're using today is the boneless, skinless chicken breast you know, <laughs> aspect of knives. Sure. Uh, 
you know, the Santoku, which is, uh, you know, the sort of commonly thought of uh, Japanese knife. And I was criticized by a, a writer at the New York Times when my book came out that I hadn't given enough space to uh, Japanese knives. And in this writer's mind, the only Japanese knife, of course, was the Santoku, hmm. was introduced by the Germans. Right. Uh, and it was really a uh, sheep's foot uh, profile that they just enlarged right. and you know took the Japanese name. It was knife that provided some advantages in the minds of some people, but it did not work particularly well uh, because when you used it properly, like for slicing, it would dig into the cutting board yep. you know, at the tip. And uh, there was some slight difference between it and the Japanese Santoku that uh, they didn't realize. Then they, it was also about the time they decided to start putting these little divots on the side, coolants, which actually date back to the late uh, 20s. But uh, they put those on the side supposedly to provide some relief, and they found out that, wow, they sold more of these Santokas. Yep. And they did a little research and found that uh, the principal purchasers of Santokas were women, bought them because they were light, uh, lighter than a chef's knife, and uh, seemed less threatening. And they found that they added even more coolants to the side, they sold more knives. Hmm. So it was like it wasn't that they put them on because it made it you know sense. Sure, it made because of, you know for marketing reasons. Sure, I mean I, I customers uh, ask me all the time what those are for when they come up to the knife wall at the Brooklyn Kitchen, and I always say, I say what the knife company will tell you is that they are to create a little pocket of air to make food release more easily from the blade of your knife. However, if if food sticking to the side of a knife was really that big a problem for humankind, we wouldn't be where we are today. Right. Like mm -hmm. I, I have never had a problem slicing a potato with a chef's knife or slicing an eggplant with a chef's knife, nor do I think the microsecond I might save if it were to stick to the blade really makes any difference. And so I say to people, look, if you like that knife best in your hand and it happens to have those, you should buy it. But don't buy it because you think it has some technological advantage over the one next to it. Yeah. Uh, you know, for me, which I, I'm always pushing in, in all my classes and, and stuff, is the most important thing is how the knife feels in your hand. Uh, it's not, you know, what your neighbor likes. It's not what you get for Christmas. It's one of the few things that you really shouldn't be buying from, you know, online from Amazon. Okay. You should go to some place that has the knife and bring a carrot along and, and then cut it. But then the other thing you have to do is maybe learn, you know, how to slice instead yep. of the chop. Yep. Uh, we're left with a legacy. You know, the, the modern chef's knife is just that. It's modern. The oldest illustration I've been able to find or mention of that type of knife is from an American cookbook from 1846. I have uh, French uh, pattern books for, you know, knife profiles from the late 18th century and chef's knives don't exist yet in that. So somewhere in there, uh, somewhere in France decided to create that pattern of knife. It really doesn't take off, though, for the you know, home kitchen until you know, once again the 1990s and maybe even later than that. Sure. Um, I mean, someone pointed out to me once that, you know, there weren't counters in American kitchens anyway until the introduction of the Hoosier cabinet, really, that was the first widespread horizontal surface aside from a table. And so what you often had, especially if you go back further into the 17th century and cooking at a hearth, is people were cutting things right into the pot. 
and they were rarely using boards, as I understand it. So having a knife that would work on a board wasn't necessary. Uh, yeah, I have been, been able to, you know, the problem with, you know, cutting board has so many different possibilities. I haven't found, a, you know, early references to them. Sure. If you go to the, um, the Q, you know, in Kew Gardens, there's Kew Palace in mm-hmm. London. And they, you know, that was where uh, King George III uh, spent his convalescence oh. after his breakdown. And when he got well enough to leave, they essentially sealed the place up and didn't open it up for 200 years. And inside there is this marvelous, uh, huge wooden table opposite the hearth. And in it is some of the most delightful uh, cut marks you could imagine. Hmm. You know, this was this was their chopping board, literally. Sure. Because in those days they had chopping excuse me they had chopping knives, but they had no chef's knives. Right. There's illustrations of chopping knives going back to the 16th century. Uh, they were much more common uh, up until uh, the beginning of the 20th century. And you have people like Fanny Farmer and her predecessors distinguishing when you chop and when you cut. Hmm. And when they say chop, they're not saying to take it with a chef's knife. They mean using a chopping knife, right. and which is a different configuration. Uh, I'm not sure how to describe them. Uh, the the mezzaluna that's sold nowadays is, is sort of close to it, right. but uh, much longer. Yep. And uh, so... You know, some things were chopped, some things were cut up. Fine dicing and things of that nature, generally, if you wanted to get, you know, that. And a lot of cooking, it would, you know, mortar and pestles were more common. Mm. And uh, those would be used. Um, but it's a, you know, interesting. I did a survey a few years back of a number of cooking or cookbook raw authors. And uh, in that survey, it turned out that about half of them felt that dice and chop were synonymous terms. Huh. That, uh, they said to chop an onion, they meant to dice it, which with my students, if you say chop it, they're going to chop it like, the thing, you know, your, your knife is an axe. Right, right. <laughs> um. Yeah, so I mean, I, I I'm in full agreement with you that the the most important thing is that it's how the knife feels in the hand. Um, it is interesting. I didn't know that the modern chef's knife was actually so recent. Um, mm-hmm. I had always thought that it that it had been around at least at least about twice that twice that long. Um, you know, as a as a piece of sort of you know as a piece of technology, what do you think about the modern chef's knife? I mean, to me, it it seems like and it definitely feels like it is a very efficient knife for the type of cutting we do now. But that may just be because I learned how to use it to do those things. Well, I use it for Chinese cooking and Japanese cooking also. Sure. And one of the things I noticed uh, in you know the places where I was at where I could see people work. Uh, I saw very few traditional Japanese knives being used. Mm. It, it was mostly it was a lot of more the you know the Japanese adaptation of Western knives, right. the large petty knives, and, and things like that. But there were still uh, double-edged, you know, or double bevel uh, type knives, larger ones. So a little bit about history. So if you think of the the post-war knife, when I say post, I mean post-Second World War. Uh, you know, the, the flints and the elcos and things like that that were you know, available knife sets. There was a pattern that looked like a chef's knife, but there wasn't sufficient finger clearance 
uh, on it to allow you know somebody with my size hands, which are pretty large, to work against a cutting board. And that's what distinguishes the, the chef's knife and the Santoku from essentially all other knife patterns is that you can work with it on a cutting board, uh, you know, the entire length of the knife. Yep. Yep. And, you know, which, which makes a big difference. So when you look at, it, you know, whether it's a, uh, a Chinese cleaver or a uh, Yusuba, um, those are all knives that, that have space for the hands yep. when you're working against a board. Uh, and that's partly what, what distinguishes and makes them worthwhile. Now, I tend to push a, a longer chef's knife than a lot of people. I prefer a 10-inch over an 8-inch. Uh, one of the reasons that I've been told by some people they don't like the longer knife is it looks more dangerous. And, you know, it does take a bigger cutting board. It does take a bigger kitchen to do that. Uh, your point about uh, you know the Hoosier cabinet, you know, which is what 1916, I think, was the patent on that. Uh, yeah, it was you know, kitchen design changes radically in, in the 20s. Uh, we start having built-in cabinets. We start having counter space, things of that nature. The the counter space, so that people often would work on. It was also around that time we have the pull-out breadboard. Mm. Built into the countertop, right? And that was often became uh, the workspace for people, um, as opposed uh, now in in uh, the late twenties. You have the uh, invention of the bread slicer and continental baking. You know the wonder folks come up with packaging that allows you know modern sandwich bread, white right. bread to be made, and so people are baking less bread, but using you know, boards for other things. Yep. Um, and that, so that was convenient. Either they'd pull it out or they would take it out totally and put it on top of the table. Uh, there, it turns out that a lot of the changes, uh, whether they were instituted by the refrigerator companies or just helped along, I'm not sure. But there was a number of contests done uh, in the 20s for architects to submit kitchen designs to. And it's where you start seeing, you know, the counters coming in and, and uh, tables leaving the kitchen. Right. Yeah, to incorporate the incorporate the refrigerator and the other appliances, I guess. Mm -hmm. Well, is that because uh, now you had you have both a stove, which is stand you know standalone, and refrigerators, and they, they you know they're not the built-in refrigerators, of course, come much later, but you have to have a space for it. Yep. You also have to. Power for it. Yep. Uh, we forget that uh, when early electric stoves and electric refrigerator were introduced, people still didn't have wall plugs. Right. Yeah. Of course. <laughs> well, I mean, I, I, uh, and and there were even, I mean, there were propane refrigerators. There were gas refrigerators. There still are. Yeah. There still are. Uh, so that's the. Um, instead of being a compression type, it's an absorption type refrigeration and uh, was common more in Europe than in the U.S. Uh, Electrolux was the big, you know, mm. uh, one of that. But where they, you know, really come back is during the age of campers in the 1970s. Yep. America decides that we want to, you know, live on the back of trucks. Yep. And so now the gas-fired uh, refrigerators come about or are reborn. Yes. Well, we are, uh, as, as I knew would happen, Peter, we're, we're out of time and have not gotten to, I think, 
some of the topics that we could have covered today. But I wanted to thank you for being on the show. Um, I didn't know if there's My anything pleasure. that you have coming up or articles, books, talks that you wanted to mention on the show. Uh, it's, I'm still it, right, currently I'm in the uh, application season where I you know send suggestions to various meetings of what I want to talk about whether they'll uh, accept them. So I don't have anything planned uh, on that. I do have a couple of books that are out, uh, you know, proposals are out, but no one has uh, shown much interest in me, and I tend to uh, be a little bit off the wall in what I do. So I have the, high, the great marketing uh, possibilities that a lot of other books do. Sure, sure. Uh, well, people can keep up with your schedule on Hertzman.com? Right. Great. Or at least they can see it afterwards. Okay. <laughs> well, I definitely, I mean, I would recommend everyone head over there when you, you know, if you're looking for some articles to read, um, you know, I've, I've been on the, this thing. I've been trying to read uh, some kind of article, whether it's, you know, about the current political, you know, what's going on or, or other articles or, you know, old articles at least once a day, because I feel like it's a it's an important trait that one of our current presidential candidates seems to think is not important, and that is reading. Uh, so I uh, recommend people, you know, make use of the the, uh, the archive there at Hertzman.com and take a look at those things. And I'm going to end, uh, I'll end today actually with a haiku, Peter, if you don't mind, one of your haikus, I hope I do it justice, um, that, uh, that appears on your site that I really liked. Um, it is, I have cooked the pork and the chef is satisfied. My glasses are greasy. So... Thank you, Peter. Uh, that's one of Peter's haikus. You can find it on his site. Um, and uh, thank you, everybody, for listening today to Feast Your Ears. A big thank you to Kristen Baylor, who's my producer here, and Pierre Bienname, who engineered the show today. You can find Feast Your Ears, as well as lots of other great shows, at heritageradionetwork.org and on iTunes and Stitcher. Follow me on Instagram, at thefoodballer, and I'll talk to you next week. Thanks for listening to this program on heritageradionetwork.org. You can find all of our archived programs on our website or as podcasts in the iTunes store by searching Heritage Radio Network. You can like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at heritage underscore radio. You can email us questions at any time at info at heritageradionetwork.org. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization. To donate and become a member, visit our website today. Thanks for listening.